Welcome to the Melinda Eitzen Show. I'm Melinda. Today, we are so fortunate to have Esther Donald with us. She is from Gornson Bain Osley, a partner with that firm, very experienced lawyer, and she does family law like I do. And we're going to talk today about special populations in family law. Welcome, Esther. Thank you. I'm excited to be here with you, Melinda. I'm so glad you're here. We've known each other a long time. We have. <laughs> I've been a fan. I've been a fan of yours a long a time. Mutual admiration society for a long time. So we have done family law long enough, and a lot of people say family law, but we really mean divorces and divorce adjacent, right? Absolutely. And we're now seeing some populations that maybe we didn't see at the beginning of our practice, like what we call the gray divorce. Yes. Um, in fact, I would say that has become almost a majority of my practice at this point. People tell you that your clients tend to be maybe 10 years plus or minus your own age. And oh. I've found for me that tends to be pretty true. So I am at the age, I'm just turned 60, have um, young adult kids. And a lot of my clients fall into that range, a little younger, a little older. All of that qualifies as what um, sociologists are calling this gray divorce trend. Yeah. What does gray divorce mean? They have gray hair, I guess. Well, they have gray hair, which some of us have. It just doesn't show. <laughs> I have <some. laughs> But um, that it's being defined as divorce among people who are 50 and over, which kind of offends me because I didn't I know 50 seems young. <laughs> seems young to me too. But I would say that's the demographic when you hear gray divorce. And there's some other terms you'll hear silver splitters. I've heard that. Um, Diamond divorce, maybe because it's talking about a diamond anniversary, right? Occurs later in your life. But those tend to be divorces 50 or over. Although there are some trends that I've been reading about that are really looking at even people 65 and over. And there's an extremely dramatic increase in divorces among that demographic. That's the surprising part, right? Early in my career, people in their 70s, people in their 80s did not get divorced. It just wasn't culturally acceptable socially acceptable for that group to get divorced. I didn't have barely any cases. And now we have a bunch of people who've been married 40 years getting divorced. We have, it's very common in my practice. Um, the oldest divorce client I've ever had was 88 years old. This was not a first marriage. Um, but there are all kinds of different issues that come up in that age group. And like you said, I think now the 88 is still unusual. But in that 50 to 75 range is much more typical than it was 20 or 30 years ago, certainly. So why is that, in your opinion? I mean, we probably have our own opinions. They may not be <laughs> tested. But why are older people getting divorced now? So I think there's some main categories of reasons. One of the first and probably the most important really is people are living longer, healthier lives. So at age 65... I don't think people are saying to themselves, well, what's the point, right? I'm on my very last chapter. Instead, they're saying, I might have 20 or 25 more years. Is this a relationship that I want to spend it in? Is this the way I want to spend it? So I think the lifespans. And um, I think you have more, a lot more women in the workforce with careers. So mm -hmm. I think, and, and the statistics are that these gray divorces, about two-thirds of them are filed by women, which is not really a statistic you see in younger populations. So I have to believe there is a real tie to women being more financially independent, feeling more self-sufficient, um, mm -hmm. maybe wanting more, 
maybe it's women back in the workforce after a stay home mm -hmm. period of life. And the, at the same time that husband may be starting to think about retirement. So they're just not aligned in the mm -hmm. way they want to spend their time. Those are, I think, two of the big factors. And then a, a huge one being, I think the stigma around divorce has, has just eroded. It may not have disappeared completely, but it's very infrequently a factor. Yeah, I this age group that is now in their 70s and 80s, they are finally the population where, oh my gosh, you know, you could never get divorced. This population now says it's an option. It's an option. They're, you're really looking at the baby boomers, right? And so they... They lived and grew up through the sexual revolution. They're used to people having different partners throughout their lives. Many ha are children of divorce. It's just, it is not um, taboo, I think, mm -hmm. in the way it was. And I think there's probably some relationship between the fact that people are less involved with organized religion. Yes. So there's, there's a tie there, certainly. There's less religious pressure a to stay married no matter what. So before, we probably just had a lot of old people miserable staying married and now they're saying why stay married if i'm miserable correct and i think one of the things that you and i do and i know we'll get to this eventually is because we both do a lot of collaborative divorce i'm really committed to the idea of if you're miserable within the marriage but there are other things that are good about your long-term family can we keep the good but reconfigure the part that's not working so it's harder than it sounds but it's yes. doable the part that's still surprising to me is that some of them have been married 40-something years. Like, you can't tell me they suddenly became miserable. <laughs> so why did they wait so long? And I don't have an answer to that. Yeah. I think that a lot, of, a lot of clients will tell us that they wanted to stay together for kids. They wanted to have an intact, what they thought was a stable family for kids. Mm -hmm. um, what probably both of us see is occasionally you'll have that divorce filing. They start the process. And the young adult kids start saying, this is no surprise. Why did you wait so long? Mm -hmm. I wish you would have done this sooner. Mm -hmm. Because they felt that, like you said, there was either tension in the house, there was unhappiness in the house. Mm -hmm. So, right, they weren't doing anything about it, but I think the, the cracks in the foundation were already there. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm identifying the gray divorce people as a special population because they do have some differences from, used to be, it was more like, and people in their 40s get divorced. Now people in their 80s get divorced. There's some different issues that we have or struggles or challenges or things to be aware of when working with the population in their 70s and their 80s. Tell us what some of those would be. Okay. Um, I'm going to start with one that I think is not so obvious to everybody, which is instead of worrying about how are we going to take care of our kids, how do we tell our kids about this divorce, how do we take care of the kids, we now have adult kids bringing pressure and opinions into their parents' marriage. So that really flips the script a lot. And you can have adult kids that either take a side, um, dad, how could you do this? Mom needs to be taken care of, um, judgy and uh, critical and want to have a say in it. You can also just have adult kids who are concerned about how's this going to affect the grandkids? How's this going to affect family estate planning? So I think that is one thing you really get these we tend to call them shadow figures, but they're not in the shadows. I mean, these adult <laughs> kids, they want to talk to the lawyers. They're right next to them. They are, and they, they want to be part of the process. I think coming from a good place in a constructive way, but it is, it's not always constructive, and it adds a lot more voices to an already crowded conversation sometimes. 
So I think that's one thing different. Have you seen that? Yes, definitely, where you're kind of getting direction from two people. Instead of just your client, you're getting direction from that uh, adult child, and maybe they're not aligned. Yeah. And that can really be challenging. So they want the help of the adult child. They're like, hey, come help me. But then they don't always agree. So we as a lawyer have to be really careful to understand from our client, am I taking direction from this person or not? Yeah. Well, and to help, I've found that if I can help my client understand, not everything has to be shared with your adult child, right? right? You're the client. We have an attorney-client privilege relationship. Mm -hmm. And there may be some things that your child doesn't know about your marital relationship that even though your child's 40, you don't want her to know. They you don't do need, not need to know They at don't all. need to know. So, Some people say, we need to tell the truth. I'm yeah. like, we lie to our kids about a lot of stuff. Uh, <laughs> so do not start now telling me we have to tell them the truth about everything. Absolutely. I feel like I, I tend to spend time giving my client permission to say some things are more appropriate to be done with us without the mm -hmm. involvement of your adult child. And you need to feel okay about that. Right. When they say they need, we need to tell the truth. It's usually something critical about the other side. <laughs> sure. They need to know the truth about their other parent, not necessarily the truth to about the big picture. them is really what that's about. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that's, so that's one real factor that I've yes. seen. Another is a different kind of focus on finances. Either the couple has already made the, the majority of their, they've amassed the majority of their wealth, right? So that can be a really good thing, but it's got to last for the mm -hmm. rest of time. Maybe neither of them are working anymore. So we've got a fixed pool of assets. Mm -hmm. um, one may still be in the workforce and the other not. So there's all kinds of different financial arrangements and retirement is right around the corner. If not um, already there in upon terms us. of upon us, mm -hmm. uh, social security becomes an issue. I never talk about social security with my 40 year old clients. It very right. rarely comes up. Right. Um, Health insurance. Talk to me about your experience with that, but I find that to be a major issue if there is one partner who's out of the workforce, but they're not Medicare age. Yes, yet. yes. It's an awkward uh, age. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that the saddest case I had, and I it wasn't even a case, it was a potential client. She came in and let's say she's 76 and she had never worked. So her husband supported them the whole time, but they had not amassed a big fortune. And so she's not really happy and she wants to leave, but he's making a little bit of money. He's still making some money. And I don't see how she would support herself. And she doesn't want to lower her lifestyle to the point that she'd get a little, you know, $30,000 a year job at 76 if she could even do that and live off social security because they didn't really have anything. And I'm like, you might be better off staying married. I think there are, um, there are alternatives that some older late in life couples are exploring now that don't involve a legal divorce. Maybe they need to be physically separated, but not divorced. Maybe they need to make some financial arrangements, um, for each of them, but not in the marriage. So I think it's I think it's our responsibility as divorce lawyers to help people understand divorce is not the only option. What's the problem they're trying to solve for? Yes. And divorce might be an answer. There might be some other things that could help them. Yeah, yeah, I mean, if they have kids, then I'm saying, well, could you live with your kids? You know, <laughs> I'm mm -hmm. sure everybody's thrilled about that. Yeah. But that's what people do if they don't have money 
and they don't have a spouse anymore is they look to their kids, but not everybody has kids. So yeah. that's the challenge of that. Sure. I find even um, in some couples, and maybe not in their 70s, maybe we're talking now in their 50s, they're still the original marital residence or the residence where they raised their kids and there's an mm -hmm. emotional attachment to it. Yeah, I don't, right? But it's a big, big um, financial obligation, right? And even if the, you know, there's a mortgage maybe still, even if there isn't, mm -hmm. you know, there's homeowner's insurance, there's property taxes, there's the cost of running the house because they say, well, I wanna keep the house because the kids come home for the holidays. Well, that's a week of the year. Is that really the best way for you to, um, to use your assets? So that can be an emotional and financial conversation that I really see in these gray divorces, the early gray divorces. I just said to a woman, maybe, I said, how often are the kids coming home? Okay, one time a year. I said, what if you just rent a big Airbnb? And, and even I represented the husband and I said that, to the wife and the husband was like no she wouldn't like that because she wants to have her china and her you know she wants to put on the christmas dinner or the thanksgiving or whatever the occasion was i was like carry that all over the airbnb i mean really the cost of carrying the nine thousand square foot house for one person she's going to be there by herself so that one time a year she can entertain it's like you can pay a fraction of the cost of carrying that house to entertain crazily someplace else. Absolutely. Or go somewhere, take everybody somewhere wonderful Let's and have, a, right, have an experience. <laughs> I'll tell you, I think one of my secret weapons is not me. So at that point, making sure that client is talking to a financial advisor. Yes. There, maybe there was a financial advisor that the couple was using as a couple. Maybe his or her primary relationship is with the other spouse, mm -hmm. right? To really look at, we hate the word budget. Nobody likes to think they're on a budget, mm -hmm. but we're all on a budget. We have things we spend money on and we have money that comes in to really look at their post-divorce spending choices and say, is that 9,000 square foot house a choice I want to make? What other choices could I make in my life if I wasn't carrying that? And sometimes it's not just a divorce lawyer that runs that conversation well. It's a financial person who can help them really look at what are your finances going to look like when you're on your own? I love it when they do that forecasting software and they show, okay, Here's how much money you have. Here's how much Social Security you're going to have. We're going to assume you're going to live to a certain age, and here's how long your money will last. I had a client once say, I'm so glad we did that because then at least if I knew I really couldn't afford that car, at least it was a knowledgeable decision. <laughs> I agree. And I've, the, the, the kind of software that we see often will give them a green light, a yellow light, or a red light, right? Mm -hmm. Depending on, uh, again, assuming a certain um, age span, assuming mm -hmm. Social Security, assuming they'll keep making what they make for a while, whatever. But it's very interesting how people can change what they say they need once they see that yellow or red light and say, I want to get to a green light. Maybe this thing isn't as important to me as I thought. Maybe this choice isn't as important to me. And divorce gives, I mean, one of the silver linings is it gives everyone a chance to really look at what choices they're making emotionally, financially, mm -hmm. and reset things that are not serving them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay, so one thing I'm seeing in my gray divorce cases is a much higher percentage of people that maybe they're starting to have a little bit of 
memory loss, dementia, something where their competence could come into question. Yeah, this is, I think, a factor we see. So again, distinguishing gray divorce from people divorcing earlier in their life. This is much more common when you have an older population. And I think it's incumbent upon the attorneys because we usually are the first outside person, right, that's taking a look at what's going on to say, I'm not, from what you're telling me about your spouse, I'm not sure he or she is competent to make the kind of decisions and agreements that we need to make in a divorce. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes there, sometimes that, the involvement of an adult child can be really helpful in that mm -hmm. both from an assessment standpoint, yes. is mom or dad okay? Yes. And encouraging maybe some outside help. Sometimes you need a guardian or a, some, an attorney that is helping that person make their decisions, mm -hmm. right? So I, I think that's a factor. It also is interesting, I don't know if you've had this, but I'm sitting sometimes in an initial consultation with a potential new client and I'm wondering about their competence. Oh, it's horrible. Right, it's really, it's such a, it's a, to me, a scary place to be because first of all, you wanna be tactful. Somebody's coming to you in a painful place in their life. Oh yeah. But you're thinking, I don't know if I can help him or her make the decisions that need to be made because I can tell they're, they don't seem to have all their faculties mm -hmm. intact still. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's a, that's a, this is a very um, important piece of great divorce that I think most attorneys who are dealing with this population need continuing education on, and we need outside resources. Who do mm -hmm. I get in touch with to, mm -hmm. to sort of decide what kind of help needs to be brought into the dynamic to get the problems solved? I had one client, I was like, your doctor is going to have to tell me that you have capacity yeah, because you're doing some crazy stuff. I mean, I said it better than that, but you know, <laughs> it was concerning me and I didn't know if I had to recommend that a guardian be appointed, you know, what is happening. And literally the doctor called me, yeah. <laughs> we had a conversation because there is the stress of the divorce could cause someone to appear you know, not their best. Right. So was it just that? Or did I really have a mental health issue or a capacity issue, diminishing, you know, cognitive ability where I could not accept direction from that person? Well, and, and you aren't confident that they're making agreements that they fully appreciate the pros and cons and yes. are making an informed choice. Um, but I think that sending somebody to their medical doctor first mm -hmm. is an excellent an excellent place to send them, right? And I think that um, I've also often I've often said to clients, I don't think you're crazy. I think that you are situationally stressed, mm -hmm. and I think we need to look at how that is affecting the way you're showing up for this divorce. And I want to make sure you come through this as strong as possible with your best possible decision making. Yes, yes. Okay, so this is probably not the politically correct thing to say, but let's assume this person has all their faculties. It's not an issue of capacity. Don't you think that sometimes older people are stubborn? Absolutely. And I guess it's not politically correct to say crazy either, but we just <laughs> said it. <laughs> so, yes, I do. I think all of us, we become more of whoever we are. We become entrenched. We become set in our ways. And I think it is a challenge when you have an older client to say, we need to look, to open our minds to different ways we could solve this problem. Mm -hmm. Because I still, I, I tend to think of divorce as a puzzle, right? Not a battle. Mm -hmm. Other divorce lawyers see it differently. But you have to be willing to say, there, this might not be a jigsaw puzzle. This might be the kind of puzzle that has more than one solution, right? There's not just one yes. way to put it together correctly. And um, 
They might be set in their ways. They might. And I find that sometimes my older client, let's say it's husband, um, but it's the, the party who was more in charge of the marital finances already thinks they have the financial solution. This is what we're going to have to do. Mm -hmm. And it takes away the voice of the other the other uh, spouse, mm -hmm. right? Um, it makes it harder to reach agreements. So that's, I think that's one of my jobs from the very beginning is to try to open up minds and to try to get mm -hmm. people off of that stubborn, entrenched position to the idea that we need a solution that you both can agree to that will work for your whole family, including adult kids, grandkids. One thing we haven't talked about is relationships with extended family in a mm -hmm. long marriage your sister-in-law is like your sister yes often. yes so ending the marriage ends all these extended relationships or at least can reconfigure them yes. so that's something that i think we see i see much in a much more extreme way than i do in a younger couple where the extended family is not quite as much um you know an part immutable of part of the picture right yeah right yeah. definitely okay let's switch to another population <laughs> We have always dealt with, but it is a special population because they're treated a little differently, adult children, but not very adult. So they're like 18 to 24. They're legal adults, right? Right. And why is that more challenging for us sometimes than under 18? Okay, well, it's hugely challenging for us as divorce lawyers because our family code says that the court has jurisdiction over these kiddos until they're 18 and graduated from high school, right? They have to be both of those things. So if they have a summer birthday, maybe it's going to go till July. But after that, the judge, if you're going to take your divorce to the courthouse, the judge cannot make rulings that will affect that kid after that age. That is, for most people, college, um, their health coverage. Uh, their car, their auto insurance, their cell phone plan. It's a legal fiction. Uh, it's <laughs> that these are self-sufficient, money-earning people. It is a legal fiction. And the, the good news in, in my world is, and I'm not talking about just rich clients, but I'm talking about clients who have a, a strong family and, and are workers and have been able to help their kids get through school and want to help their kids get through college. They want to continue to do those things. It's not a matter of forcing them to do it. They, they've always felt they were going to help their kids with that. Just how does that look when our money is not one pool? Yes. Right? Yes. So um, this is where I get to talk about my very favorite divorce topic, which is collaborative divorce, mm -hmm. because we get to say... We don't care that the family code won't address these kids because they are part of the family system. And spouses, if you want to address these things, we can help you do that. Mm -hmm. We can help you do it from a mental health standpoint. We can help you do it from a financial standpoint. And we can help you make agreements that will keep, keep your goals for your children intact and relatively unchanged, even though you're getting divorced. Mm -hmm. It's a great topic because certainly... Our children who are 18 to 24, we care about equally to our <laughs> children that are under 18, and we want the best for them, right? But when the party's finances are changing, it might change their feeling about how much they can help, and and they may not know, ooh, do I want to commit in a, a contract to pay for college, or do I just want to see how it goes to pay for college? And, and maybe that was even one of the reasons that the marriage didn't work is they didn't see all of that the same. Like one 
of the parents wanted to pay for everything for the kids and the other said, well, well, I want to help them some, but I also want them to work while they're in school. That could be a, a reason they disagree. It, it could. It could be a major factor for how they got to the divorce anyway. Mm -hmm. Again, though, in a collaborative process, one of the things that I think we can offer to our clients that they weren't necessarily doing for themselves is to sit with a neutral mental health professional who understands the developmental ages and needs of kids, including young adult kids, and help them decide what's a compromised position between doing nothing for the kids, doing everything for the kids. And then there can be the financial and legal analysis of, does it get paid for equally? One person is in the workforce and one isn't. Does it make sense to have some kind of ratio of payment for those things? Mm -hmm. Even if they're both in the workforce, but one one of the couple is a very high wage earner and one is a modest wage earner. Mm -hmm. Does that affect the picture? Um, and it's interesting how often I feel like I've been able to have conversations with clients about it's okay to also talk to your kids about where are they applying to college because different colleges have different price tags. and Huge difference sometimes. Right? And maybe when the family was intact, one of the parents said, I want daughter to go anywhere she can get in. I want her to go to the best place she can get in without regard to the price tag. Mm -hmm. Now that we're each looking at our own finances, that opinion can be modified sometimes and say, well, I want her to go to the best place she can go that I can afford to help her go. Yes. Right? Yes, absolutely. With children under 18, a court can order counseling for the kids, right? I mean, divorce is a major life change for everybody involved. So I'm a big advocate. Everybody should go to counseling. Agreed. But an 18-year-old who's not subject to the court anymore, what do we do about that? If maybe they need some counseling or maybe they're, you know, having a conflict with one of the parents. So I've, I've had a... I've, kind of an overall answer to that and then a, a really specific example that I love. So my overall example is one of the things that we can do in a collaborative divorce is to bring in a child specialist. This child specialist is a mental health professional, but not the neutral mental health professional who might already be on the team. And he or she can meet with the young adult kids, even older adult kids, for some divorce education and to try to feel out what's going on. Give them a voice in the process, not a vote in the process often can help the parents understand this young person could benefit from some counseling. Mm -hmm. um, it, also, it gives the young person also maybe uh, some tools and language to go back to the parents and say, I'd like to have some counseling. I'm, having, I'm struggling with this. Mm -hmm. I'm having trouble with the, with the divorce, right? Um, I had one case with a, a collaborative case. There was a mental health professional. The husband and wife were in their late 50s, young adult kids. They were actually getting along relatively well for a divorcing couple. They were making decisions well together. And their big one of the big factors in the divorce that led them there and that they were trying to solve for the future was a 23-ish year old daughter who was failing to launch. You know that expression? Yes, okay. yes. Um, college hadn't really been right for her. She tried a couple of different things, had had a few jobs, was trying to live independently, but not really because parents were paying for it. And the mental health professional on the collaborative team was able to help them with some resources. They found a literally a failure to launch program that a counseling group here in Dallas um, has come up with and facilitates for kids in that exact age group, this kind of 18 to 25-ish probably. Mm -hmm. And it made all the difference for their daughter and their family. Um, it also was affecting the other two slightly older siblings because they were kind of down on mom and dad. How are you going to divorce when 
younger sister is kind of in a world of hurt and not oh, functioning well yes. right now. Are we going to have to help? Who's going to help her? Right. So, Everything was crumbling is what it looked like. It was. And so we, it, it, it was the key and it was really the thing keeping them from moving towards um, a, a settlement. It was the, I don't know, the elephant in the middle of the room, if you will. So I think that that's a way that in collaborative, we can look at what's happening in the whole family system and what are the outside resources that are not lawyers that might help them. Mm -hmm. Divorce is not just legal. Yes. What a great story, Esther. I mean, I, people, whenever anybody asks me, what do you do for a living? And I say, I'm a divorce lawyer. They always have that look on their face. Like, what do I say to that? And they often go, oh, <laughs> they don't say that's great because it doesn't sound like it would be something you would grow up thinking, I want to be a divorce lawyer. But the story you just told shows why it's so rewarding to be a divorce lawyer because we can really help people at a, a major crisis, a very difficult time in their life. You can have a positive impact. And it wasn't just that you helped them get divorced, which was important, but you helped them identify a resource for their child. You do. I, we do. And it's such a privilege. It's a responsibility, too. I think there mm -hmm. are jobs that are more fun and less stressful. But I have so much satisfaction feeling like the family was better after I had my interaction with them over a period of a couple months to a year or two sometimes, right, than they were before. before yes. Right? I love collaborative, as you know, also. And I do think it allows for more of that. I mean, it could happen in a litigation case, too. But we definitely have a higher likelihood of that type of thinking outside the box result. I had one case, collaborative case, where the adult child was really interfering in the divorce because of his own desire. And he was really putting pressure on the mom, who was my client, to do a certain thing because he wanted to get a car. It was all about a car. <laughs> These people were like car collectors and there was a special car that he had been promised. And it was getting in the way. I mean, it was getting in the way of settlement because my client was just feeling like she couldn't disappoint the child on that point. And somehow we concluded that I would meet with the child and his counselor without the mom there and just tell the child, butt out. And I did. I met with him. It was incredibly effective. And I just said in a nice way, hey, she's got your back. You don't need to worry about it, but you've got to take the pressure off of her it's hard enough what she's doing and what she's going through. And he actually heard me and he backed off and they got divorced and he got his car. <laughs> and again, something that the outside world thinks, oh, you help people destroy their families. In fact, we help people repair their families so often. Mm -hmm. um, and I've come full circle. I used to say I was a family lawyer. That's what mm -hmm. we call ourselves. And it sounds nicer. And people would say, oh, could you draft my will? <laughs> oh, I'm not no. that kind of family lawyer. So then I kind of owned it. I'm a divorce lawyer. I'm a yes. collaborative divorce lawyer. But I tend to try to explain when people give you that awkward look mm -hmm. and reaction of, oh, you know, because that's just stops a conversation. I try to help people repair their families. And I think that's what we do. We don't mm -hmm. always do it perfectly. We don't have every tool at our disposal. But I think collaborative divorce lawyers especially try to do that. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being here, Esther. This was my pleasure. Thank you. 
We're going to have on the screen how to reach Esther and uh, the firm of Gornson Bain Osley. They're an excellent firm. You cannot go wrong with Esther if you had any family law matter. So please reach out to her for any resource. Such a pleasure to have her here today. And now we're going to have the tip of the day. Don't assume that your retirement is set because your spouse is going to receive a large inheritance or maybe already has received one. And don't spend all your other money thinking, oh, that's our retirement. Because guess what? If you get divorced, that is going to be likely found to be your spouse's separate property. And he or she may not keep that promise that, hey, that's our retirement, and you may not end up with retirement. And unfortunately, I see in my practice, people sometimes overspend and they don't save because they think, oh, we have that as a backstop. Well, if it's not your family's money, you don't have that necessarily as a backstop. So be smart. Make sure you have your own retirement saved for. Make sure that you have ability to make a living so that you can always take care of yourself. And that is the tip for today.